two lit chicks, book bites, Julia and Ed. Lucy Hoft is the author of the Sarah Black Spy series. Originally from the UK, she has spent most of the last 20 years living and working around the world in different locations that have served as inspiration for the books. She now lives with her family in Lourdes, Namibia, growing giant kelp, setting up a school, and trying to find time between to crack on with the next book. Welcome to the show, Lucy. Thank you very much. I'm really, really happy to be here. You've lived a pretty interesting life so far. <laughs> you should write travel books. Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, I sort of do. Um, you know, the, the books, The King's Pawn and the Sarah Black series really started as a way of capturing some of the amazing places that I'd been and some of the amazing people I'd met. Um, but I felt that writing a memoir was a bit boring, um, especially at the age of 35 or whatever it was when I started writing that seemed a bit pretentious. Um, so yeah, the, I ended up inventing a character and a story that allowed me to revisit all of these extraordinary places, but make them a lot more fun to read. Yeah, that's a really clever way of doing it. So tell us about the places that have inspired your books. Um, so The King's Pawn, which is the first in the series, is set in uh, Georgia and Azerbaijan, which are in the South Caucasus. Um, they're not particularly well-known countries, especially Georgia. When you say Georgia, most people think automatically of the state in the US. Uh, but they're really magical places. Um, and I, my very first overseas posting with DFID, which was the UK Department for International Development, um, was to Georgia. I was living in Georgia and working in Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan. And I absolutely fell in love with Georgia. It's a really magic place. It's somewhere where the strange and the startling and the unexpected just happens far more often than it should do. Um, so I knew that that was where I wanted to set my first book. And obviously it's also, you know, it's former Soviet Union. It's somewhere with, that had a lot of Russian meddling, still does, always has done. Um, so it's also a great setting for, for a spy novel. Mm, gosh, yeah. And your second one, is is it in Sierra Leone? Yeah, so the second one is Sierra Leone. Um, the, the King's Pawn was set during a time that I lived in um, in Georgia, and it is set around a real life event that happened around that time. Um, Sierra Leone, I decided I wanted to set it during the wartime. So when I lived there and worked there, it was after, it was about five years after the end of the war, and it was a completely different place. It was very peaceful, it was very calm. It was very hard to imagine the atrocities that had happened. Um, but so I had to do quite a lot more research to make sure that I could capture properly the um, what it would have been like there during wartime. Um, and I also wanted to set it again around real historical events about the end of the war. Um, so doing quite a lot of research to make sure I got that right as well. Hmm. Yeah. And book three was is in China. Is book three book three's not out yet or? No, book three's not out yet, but it is yeah. written. Um, mm -hmm. It is sort of working its way through the long publishing process. Um, <laughs> and it's China. It's got a little bit of Djibouti um, because a friend of mine wrote, uh, is a journalist and wrote an article about Djibouti and how it's the sort of spy capital of the world. And I just thought it sounded so strange and weird and fascinating that I had to have a scene there. <laughs> um, so, so I, I sent poor Sarah off to Djibouti for a bit. Um, but it's mostly in China, which is where I lived for a while as well. Um, and then also a lot of it is in London. Um, and also North Korea features in book three. And book three I wrote during lockdown. Um, mm. And I was in the Netherlands at the time. Uh, feeling very, very um, locked down, I suppose, and quite isolated because, mm. uh, well, I mean, everybody did at the time, but also my children were at Dutch school and my Dutch is really quite bad. So I was trying to help them with 
homeschooling in Dutch oh, <laughs> while <man>. writing a novel. <laughs> so I feel the kind of you know the slight insanity that I think everybody had during lockdown has definitely crept into book three in terms of making it more outlandish and more escapism and and more you know crazy places. Because I think it was, the, you know, that was that was the relief. Yeah, in the in the future, I think that there will be a whole section of books called like pandemic literature that uh, yeah. that goes back to to that was written during that time. Um, and actually, you worked with uh, Queen Rania of Jordan, and are you using that one for any of the books? Yeah, that's book four. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, book four is definitely going to be a Jordan book. Um, uh, yeah, Jordan with a bit of uh, also a bit a bit more of London and UK and um possibly a bit of sort of Xinjiang Eastern China um obviously uh writing about real life you, people you have to be extremely careful writing about royal families you have to be extremely careful especially when they're your former employees um so that will be one <laughs> I will take my time to make sure I do properly but uh the idea I have is again quite outlandish um and a lot of fun and um I'm pretty sure she she would enjoy it <laughs> She's got a great sense of humor. <laughs> well, you, you have to send her a copy. Lucy, um, yes, your, yes. your bio uh, says uh, that you've always plausibly denied being a spy, but the books were written to show what that life might have been like. I mean, you are 100% a spy, aren't you? I mean, you, you are, there's, there's no way... I'm going to give a plausible denial to that, Ed. There's no way with that bio that, you, that you're not a spy. I mean, you studied languages and philosophy at Oxford. Um, you joined the Foreign Office straight from university in search of adventure and new people and places, i.e. spying. Uh, you quickly moved across <laughs> to the Department for International Development, still spying. Uh, you spent time in Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, China, Sierra Leone, as, as we discussed, still spying. Uh, you left, the, you left um, DFID, as, as the cool people call it, um, to go to Jordan to work, as, as we talked, for the Queen, still spying. Um, while spending much of your time bumping around the desert in a Land Rover, presumably spying. Um, I, I, I will, I will, I'll stop now because I've made my stupid comedy point. But but I, I, I know you can't tell us, but can you tell us in a way that's not directly telling us that you're a spy? <laughs> um, so you are a spy. Everybody always assumed that I was a spy. For all of those reasons that you've just very clearly set out. You know, obviously, Diffid, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, of course, whatever. You have to call it that. Um, but I wasn't. I was working for Diffid, and indeed, when I worked in in Jordan, I was actually working for the Royal Hashemite Corps. I was working for the government of Jordan, so I was very much not a British spy. But because everybody assumed that I was, it was fun to write a sort of okay. Well, what if that had been the case? If what I would were, that look yeah. like? Um, and yeah, where, okay. the, where the books came from. So I know the game. I know the game. It's okay. You don't need to admit it. But it's so it's so cool talking to a spy. It's so cool talking to a spy. We're not trying to get her arrested, okay? Link once for this, link twice for that. What a great great book that would be if she was arrested and then we had to sort of go on a run with her. Um that would be so cool. You yeah. can write you can write that one in. <laughs> <laughs> Collaboration. They say that our first books are often our most autobiographical, but you've actually drawn from your life for all of your books. Um, so what do you think are the pitfalls of this? Um, I think there's quite more than I expected. I mean, the first of them is in the writing itself. So when I started writing, Sarah really was very like me. I imagined her as me doing these things that I'd invented. 
Um, and that really didn't work at all. I found it so hard to write. I found that she came off the page as really bland and boring and characterless because I felt very self-conscious writing about myself. Mm. So there was this boring main character surrounded by all of these really exciting, interesting other people. And that just was a balance that didn't work. So I had to very actively make Sarah not me um, and give her different characteristics and make her behave differently. And then I could write her in a much more compelling, interesting way. Mm. Um, so that was the first, which I sort of realized as I went. What I kind of hadn't realized until it was published was that still everybody would assume, of course, it was me. Um, so, you know, my mum got upset that uh, Sarah's mum is dead. <laughs> and my <laughs> brothers got upset that, you know, what they don't really feature very much. And one of them's having, one of Sarah's brothers is having uh, marriage problems. And, you know, all of these <laughs> things that, read, that, that people read into it that I hadn't really anticipated. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know how you feel. I know because in my book, Stella, you know, people keep saying, "Oh, is she you? Is she you?" I'm like, "No, no, no, she's not me. She's got red hair," you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I but know. otherwise, it's, yeah, otherwise, no, no, she's definitely not me. She's definitely not me. But you know how it is. You take details. Yeah, every character. No, you do. And I, I think one piece of advice I'd give is do make sure you change names. <laughs> so <laughs> I was say. The part of the King's Pawn is set in the embassy in Tbilisi and um, some of the characters there are drawn very directly from life and anyone who knows them would recognise them very clearly. Mm. Um, but I changed names for the key ones. But then there was one um, one girl who was working in the embassy at the time. She was very junior. She was the ambassador's secretary. Um, you know, she was clearly the most useful person there. Um, and so I included her in the book and I kind of make her sort of Sarah's helper and she ends up being the one who helps Sarah unravel some things. And I kept her name, which was really stupid. I don't know what I was thinking. But, you know, I was just thinking, oh, well, you know, she'll never remember. It's years ago. It's a long time. No one will put two and two together. And then it turns out I went to do a book launch for it in Georgia recently. And it turns out she's now the Georgian ambassador to the UK. <laughs> so I was entirely <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, I couldn't really pretend that it wasn't her. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That's really good. So, I mean, when you're writing about places that you have been in the past? I mean, do you keep detailed journals about the places so you can remember the details? Or like, what advice do you have for people to help them remember details of places that they've been that they want to write about and they don't have money to go visit again? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think keeping some sort of journal is essential. Um, I find my memory is very poor. I'm very good at remembering impressions and sort of feelings about things, but actual details just disappear. Um, so when I first moved to Georgia, I was keeping this incredibly detailed correspondence with my best friend at the time. Uh, we wrote to each other almost every day about everything, and that was an incredibly valuable treasure trove of details. Um, and then after that, um, when I met my now husband, we didn't live on the same continent for the next three years. So we also used to write to each other endless detailed emails. And that was incredibly useful for diving back into Sierra Leone and remembering China. Um, and now I worry because I don't really do those email correspondences with anyone. You know, I do. We do lots of WhatsApp chats and voice notes and stuff. But those yeah. I just don't think are going to be as useful. Um, I you know I, where we the location we're in at the moment is really one of the most extraordinary places in the world. Yeah, tell us tell us about that. Um, well, it's a, it's called Luderitz. It's a small town. It is genuinely at the end of the earth. It's at the end of the road, and it, the road comes down this incredible desert moonscape until you hit the coastline, um, and you get the sort of sand dunes coming right into the ocean. It's really dramatic. It's very very remote. Wow. 
um, incredibly beautiful. And the people there are brilliant because everyone is super resourceful because you really have to be because, you know, you, you just have to make do with what you've got and everybody relies on each other and it has that nice kind of small, close community feel. So I'd love to write about it, but I'm not quite sure what yet. It's certainly, I'm not sure how I could get Sarah and her world of international espionage into a sleepy fishing village in Southwest <laughs> Africa. Um, but I'd love, you know, I just, I'm very inspired by the environment, by the ocean, by the deserts. It, somehow I'd love to have Sarah trying to escape from someone while running up a sand dune. I think that would be the ultimate in frustration. Um, so at the moment I do quite a lot of flash fiction I write. Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt there, Lisa. I was literally just about to say that. So I'm going to combine that with my question. Um, I've just seen on your website, as you say, that you write a lot of flash fiction. We just talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about the power of flash fiction. I've never written any flash fiction, so I'm kind of fascinated by it because I know loads of people do. Um, can I just quickly read a bit of your flash fiction I just found on uh, your website because it's brilliant. Can I just quickly read it? Yes, go ahead. Here we go. This is some live reading with Ed Crocker. Every day I inch closer to the crumbling cliffs and listen, hoping the waves will whisper their secrets. Shifting songs of selkies, cathedrals of kelp, turtle maps and sea stars, marinas and wrecks. But the sea keeps stubborn silence, hurling itself at the cliff with tight-lipped tenacity. Only later, as a tumbling face of rock shears clear and shatters a roiling spume, do I realise the waves are telling me all I need to know. For what more sustains life than... Water, a sprinkling of salt, and the determination to throw yourself at the same cliff time again until you win. That's brilliant. Oh, yeah, that's lovely. I really like that. Yeah, you have to read the title for that one as well, because the title is, is half, half the... Oh, yeah, sorry. I've missed, yeah, I've missed half the point. Uh, the title is, If Einstein Defined Insanity is Doing the Same Thing Over and Over and Expecting Different Results, Then the Waves Must Be Mad. Probably, probably should have done that first, really. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> just we'll, we'll reclip it so I, I sound sensible. Why do no, you, why, why do you write flash fiction, then, Lucy? Um, so that's a really good example. So that um, so flash. You know, I, when you're writing a five volume series of spy novels, you, it just takes an incredibly long time, and you get caught up in these torturous plots, and sometimes you have to go away and leave it and come back later. Um, and flash fiction, I find is is an incredibly useful way of just digging into something else, having another little creative moment while not spending too much time away from the work in progress. Um, you know, I think of flash fiction as like a tiny bite of dark chocolate in the place of a great big meal that is a novel. Um, so you can write them quickly, you can read them quickly, um, you can edit them quickly, and it doesn't take too much time. But it allows you to, to park your stories that you... You know, an idea that pops into your head and you think, oh, that's interesting, but hold on, that's got nothing to do with my book and I can't go down that rabbit hole. You can just sort of quickly put it somewhere and then you can get back to what you were supposed to be doing. Um, and again, so that one I wrote while I was in Luderitz, it's very much inspired by the incredible power of the sea and the oceans and the waves, uh, which is very much part of being there and also the kelp project um, that we're doing, the cathedrals of kelp got in there. Um, and then, you know, starting anything from scratch, we're setting up a school as well. All of these things just take such determination and perseverance that, yeah, you've got to be like the wave. You've got to keep smashing yourself against the cliff until you win. Um, and so I just, you know, it was a way of capturing all of those thoughts, putting them somewhere, and then I could carry on doing other things. 
No, wow. that's fascinating. I, re- I, 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 we keep saying, yeah, we should try. We should try this flash fiction thing. No, anyway, it, it um, becomes addictive. I started doing it because I, when I joined Twitter, everyone on Twitter seemed to be doing it, hmm. um, and it just becomes addictive. And you know, a tiny little tweet stories, like you know, two hundred fifty, two hundred eighty characters or whatever it is. Yeah, you can just bash off in no time but they're really fun and the when you see people who are really good at it how much they can get into a tiny story it's just amazing I I really like that idea of using it as a way to park those 500 million ideas that you have while you're trying to write your work in progress yeah because it's true it's like you you don't want to shut down your creativity but equally you don't want to be endlessly distracted no. Um, so you need to have some way of you know addressing them and saying yes I like you you're a good idea but Hold on. But yeah, Come back later. Wait for your turn. I, I used to do that when I when I had my photography business because I was, again, always having new ideas about stuff I could do. And one of my mentors said to me, you know, just, you know, create a, a sheet of paper that, you know, allows you to write down what the idea is at the top and all your thoughts about it. And then you can just go put it into a drawer, you know, so that it is <laughs> it's there and waiting for you should you ever require it. But it's no longer, you know, taking up your brain space. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. No, it works. It works. Yeah, no, really good. And and can you tell us briefly about the kelp forest? So what what is what does that entail? Yeah, no, I'd love to. It's one of my stories that I really love telling at the moment. Um, so we're in the reason why we're in Luderitz, Namibia is because um, it's the best place in the world to grow giant kelp. Um, and why you may ask, do you want to grow giant kelp? We're in a day to Namibia, so. Um, my, uh, I used to work in international development. My husband used to work in the oil industry and he was well ready to get out of that and to leave the corporate world and to, you know, do a sort of um, Damascene conversion and leave behind oil and gas and move towards repairing the planet and helping be part of the solution. And we came, you know, shooting around for different ideas and came across um, an Australian scientist called Tim Flannery who gave a lecture about giant kelp. Um, and, you know, long story short, looked into it, uh, decided that actually was something that had a lot of promise and that with Daniel's offshore engineering background actually was something that he could do well. Um, and then it turned out that Namibia was the best place in the world to do it. And that was, I think, the turning point when we thought, OK, right, we're, we're going. Let's let's just make this work. And again, after sort of two years in lockdown, Netherlands, all of these ideas suddenly seem hugely appealing let's go and <laughs> live in the sunshine on the other side of the world um so we started doing it and the the reason for growing giant kelp is that it um it removes a lot of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as it's growing um but it also it sort of forms a huge underwater rainforest so while um absorbing carbon and growing it creates a whole habitat for all sorts of other species to live in and so improves biodiversity of the oceans um, while capturing the carbon, it also reduces the acidity of the oceans. So there's lots and lots of beneficial things just in growing it. Um, but then with giant kelp, you can harvest just the top layer. So all the other benefits stay in place. And you can, with the kelp that you harvest, make, we're starting off with a biostimulant, which is a product that can improve land-based agriculture. It makes the plants' natural resilience much stronger so they don't need pesticides and um, fertilizers and other nasty chemicals. Um, there's potential for biopackaging, um, you know, reducing the need for single-use plastics. Um, there's pharmaceutical benefits. Uh, there's all sorts of incredible things you can do with the kelp once you've made it. So it's a real kind of benefit to the sea and benefit to the land project. 
Wow. And it's just very exciting because it's it's not it's never been done before at this scale. No one's ever tried to grow it offshore at big scale. Um, so it's a real kind of pioneering. Well, it's not been done before. We don't really know what we're doing. We'll try this. We'll try that. We've got a great team of very young, um, mostly Namibians out in Namibia. Um, and everyone has this kind of pioneering spirit of, well, it's great and it's exciting and let's give it a go and see what we can do. It is. And it's so worthwhile, you know, on behalf of the earth. I thank you. Yeah, that is. That is <laughs> and I can see that is going to make an amazing book one day. So, uh, you know, just uh yeah, be open to that that flash fiction idea when that comes around. No, I mean I think that that might be bigger than flash fiction. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think so. Yeah, 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 that's a book. It's a book. Yeah, um, no doubt about it. Yeah, uh, and the the story, you know, I think the story is just sort of showing that you can just try something. You know, yeah. you don't have to have all the answers in the plan. You can look at the state of the planet and rather than you know hanging your head in despair, you can think, well, what can I do? And then go and do it. I think that is the story I'd like to tell about about the kelp. Yeah, no, that's absolutely amazing. And uh, I'll just continue trying to buy less plastic here in the UK. <laughs> um, great. Thank you so much for joining us. That you know, And I'd like to point out to the listeners that she's joining us from a hotel in Namibia. So, um, you know, the Wi-Fi is, uh, is what it is. But, uh, but you know, we're really appreciative that she's made that effort. Yeah. Because uh, that was fascinating. Absolute really pleasure. Fascinating what, what's effect. that word for someone who's just good at everything? Is it a polyglot? Have I made that up? <laughs> You just, you just sound so, like. Oh, that's lots of languages. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh languages, yeah, languages. Yeah. Poly, polymath. Polymath. That's right. Isn't polymath. It? Yeah. Yes. You just sound oh. just like a polymath. What, what an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. It's <laughs> been great fun. And Lucy's going to be joining us on Friday with a quiz about places. So tune back in then. In the meantime, thank you. <laughs> Bye. Two Lit Chicks is a podcast about books that change lives. Find us on all major podcast platforms or go to our website at twolitchicks.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>